Well, with that, would you please rise for the uh, reading of God's Word? Today we'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Pentecost Sunday was last week. We so last week we celebrated Pentecost Sunday by being open to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Last week we read from Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 and we have that incredible happening in which fire comes from heaven, it divides into tongues of fire rests on each of them and they're able to speak in other languages as God had enabled them. The languages of those who were standing around. But as magnificent as that was, that was not the end of that day. We are going to continue on in that day in Acts chapter 2. During that Pentecost, there was tongues of fire. Um, There was amazing things, people speaking in languages that they'd never learned, telling those who were gathered there of the mighty works of God in their own languages. But that was not everything that happened that day. No, in fact, tongues alone wasn't enough to lead the people to Christ. It is what happened in the rest of chapter 2. There is still a harvest to bring in. And Pentecost, both Old Testament and New Testament, is about bringing in a harvest. Pentecost has its origins in the book of Leviticus, and before that even, when the Lord commanded them to celebrate Pentecost. This is, this is the beginning in Acts chapter 2. This is the beginning of the believers, the community of believers that would be in Jer- Jerusalem. We will continue in the second chapter of the next couple weeks here. Many people call chapter 2 of Acts the birthday of the church. So, sorry, last week we didn't have cake and ponies and, uh, and, uh, and balloon animals. It's actually really not even the birthday of the church, not the birth of the church, because Christ birthed his church when he died and rose again. It is not on the foundation of the apostles, but on the foundation of Christ himself that the church came into being. And that is why Paul the Apostle in Galatians chapter 1 will say, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one we originally preached, he says, let them be eternally condemned. Christ created the church. He bought the church from slavery of its sin. He bought it as his bride with his own blood. No, Pentecost is the first steps of of Christ's church. It is the very early part like a newborn babe learning to walk, learning to talk. This is what that first Pentecost was. The foundation of the church was not the apostles, but Christ himself. 
Pentecost, however, is a watershed moment for the new church. The moment they start relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see an almost 180 degree change in their thinking. Before Christ rises to heaven, ascends to the Father, they're asking him questions. And like almost right before, they're asking him, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were hoping for an earthly kingdom. Like now, resurrected Jesus, he's going to get an army, and we're going to destroy the Romans. And you can almost imagine Jesus doing the face palm, like, you'll get it in a few days. Just stick around here, and the Holy Spirit's going to set you right. And he does. It's like a 180-degree change. They start realizing, no, Jesus was right. His kingdom's not of this earth. It's a spiritual kingdom. One of them, on the day of Pentecost, John would have a vision from God in which we have in our Bibles, the book of Revelation. And he says in his vision, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in robes with palm branches in their hands. Pentecost is but a taste of that glorious day. Before Pentecost, they wanted to make an earthly kingdom. After Pentecost, they understood the words of Christ of it being a spiritual kingdom. It's a lesson we still have a hard time with. So often we try to build our own kingdoms. Even in churches, we try to build our own kingdoms. I think this was very surprising to me. We were in um, Orlando this last year for our general council of the Assemblies of God. That's the big that's the big show in which decisions are made for our fellowship. And um, I don't know if you all remember this or not, but there used to be a Christian theme park called the Holy Land over in Orlando. And we found out very sadly that it actually closed down. And I forget what they're doing in, in response to it. I remember thinking, though, why do we need a Christian theme park? I mean, I'm, I'm sure people spent like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on a Christian theme park. For what reason? An outreach? Well, you can go, you probably have a better time reaching out to people going to Disneyland and just engaging in conversation and telling them about the great love of Jesus Christ. Actually, me and Becca, while we were in Orlando the first day, I was having a bad day. I had a headache. I get headaches when I, when I travel. And I had a bad headache. I was probably dehydrated. And we were going to breakfast. And um, we, uh, our waiter, whose name is Buddy, and those of you who know me well, you know my cat's name is Buddy. So we were like, bing. Um, we just had this little conversation with him. He was slammed, but, you know, God just kind of brought this uh, about. And uh, we found out that his uh, sister, unfortunately, passed away very suddenly from a car accident. We were able to pray with him. We spoke to him of Jesus Christ, the one who raises the dead, the one who would raise him spiritually if he would trust and obey, like that song had said. At a diner. We didn't need to build our own kingdom saying, though, this is outreach when it's really, it's really a monument to our own greatness. There is a, there is a man who passed away a number of years ago, uh, a man God used mightily named David Wilkerson. He is the founder of Teen Challenge, also known now as Adult and Teen Challenge. David Wilkerson had an incredible burden from God as a young man to go into the inner city of New York. And there he met a gang member. He told the gang member, Jesus loves you. And the gang member took out his switchblade and said, I'll cut you into a thousand pieces. He says, you can cut me into a million pieces and every piece will scream the louder, Jesus loves you. 
It's a bit of a long story. In fact, there's a movie on about it called The Cross and the Switchblade, and it has a paunch from, uh, from chips in it, so it's, it's great. Um, you would think this guy who had this vision then to go into the inner city to preach Jesus Christ, he'd be like on the cutting edge of being relevant and everything, but he had this deep burden against what he saw of the world getting into the church. And I remember one of his sermons, he was lamenting, literally crying, as he talked about going past these churches that had tennis courts and Olympic-sized swimming pools, while missionaries continually went unfunded. People in foreign nations never hearing about Jesus, but we have our little tennis courts, we have our swimming pools, we have our edifices to our own greatness, and not building Christ's church. So it's a lesson we still have an issue today. Pentecost changes that. When we get into the Holy of Holies with Jesus Christ, it changes our attitude. This part that we are continuing on that Becca read today was the very beginning, very beginning of the first sermon preached in the church age. Look at what happens at this point in the book of Acts. Fire from heaven, tongues of fire, people speaking in other languages as the Spirit enables them. And then Peter ruins it with a dry sermon. Not at all. Not at all. I think there's some people who would probably see it that way. We start having a real Holy Ghost time here in church. People are giving prophecies. People are speaking in tongues. And it's this fever pitch. And then all of a sudden, the pastor's like, all right, we're stopping this. I need to preach. People would be like, oh, you're, 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 you're squelching the spirit. Not at all. Not at all. You'd have some people call it religion devoid of the Spirit to interrupt such a magnificent manifestation of the Holy Spirit for a sermon, but this shows only our profound lack in understanding of the Holy Spirit, what His goal is, what His purpose is, because His goal is not to put on a show for you and me. Can I say that again? His goal is not to put on a show for you and me. Unfortunately, a lot of churches, a lot of churches like ours, have used the Holy Spirit like He's a spectacle. And that grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit because you know something? The Holy Spirit's purpose, his goal is not to bring attention to himself. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit isn't trying to be like, hey, look at me, everybody. I'm doing things right here. No, his goal is to promote Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 16, however, when the Spirit, co- Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears and he will declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me by taking from what is mine and disclosing it to you. I really don't care what manifestations people claim to experience or have or whatever if they are not leading people to Jesus Christ and to love Jesus Christ. Even if they have a heavy focus on the Holy Spirit which grieves the Holy Spirit, They are not operating by the Holy Spirit because that is what he does. There's a famous quote by a pastor of a very massive church that supposedly operates in the natural. It's this. It's difficult to get the same fruit as the early church when we value a book they didn't have more than the Holy Spirit they did have. To value the scriptures above the Holy Spirit is idolatry. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. The Bible reveals God, but it is not God himself. At best, this shows a complete ignorance of how the Holy Spirit works and operates. And at worst, it's a satanic deception to make the people of God question, did God really 
save. And we see this already in Acts chapter 2 because Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit. He has a boldness drenched in purpose of the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He takes them to the scriptures. The book that man said they didn't have. They already had the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Old Testament that is found in your Bibles. It's the law and the prophets. It's everything we have right there. You know something? The New Testament comes. It's birthed out of the Old Testament. My professor in college said, if you had to choose, and you, should, and you don't have to choose, but if you had to choose one testament to have, have the Old Testament because the, because the prophets, the apostles, the believers in the New Testament, they draw from the Old Testament. And that is what Peter does here as he takes them to Joel, then he takes them to Psalms with David. Reading and obeying the Bible does not quench the Spirit. It is the crescendo of his symphony of what he is doing. And that is what we see here. The believers are to gather together in one place. All of a sudden, there's a sound like a rushing wind. There's tongues of fire. It's exciting, people. It's awesome. They divide and they rest on each of them. They start speaking in other languages. Can you imagine that? I don't know. I tried to learn Spanish for like a semester, and I was like, never again, because I learned so little. And all of a sudden, you speak just fluently. You're telling people about the wonders of God. You're telling people about the wonders of God. This is the Holy Spirit playing his sympathy. And when it's ready for the crescendo, you know what we get? We get God's word from the Old Testament. Be wary of people who downplay God's word. Be very wary of people who downplay God's word. We gather together. One of the reasons we gather together is for the reading of God's word. It's why I have Becca read it to you week by week. We read long portions of God's word because it's not about entertainment. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether or not it keeps you engaged. I don't care because that's one of the things we're told to do is the reading of God's word. Since what we are reading are not the thoughts of man, but the Holy Spirit, to read God's word, to put it into practice, is to walk by the Spirit. It's not ignoring the word and waiting for a pang in your stomach. Let's, let's be honest, that could just be gas, not the Holy Spirit. Or we say, oh, I'm going to wait for a piece about this. In fact, I was just in a discussion, and it was about a matter that the Scripture actually says a lot on. And someone's like, well, you need to stop listening to all the haters, and you need to get along with God, and if you feel a piece about it, go ahead and do it. I'm like, he's already talked about it. Find out where he's talked about it and then obey. Because you're not going to get out of obedience by being super spiritual. When you are thinking about a decision and saying, and thinking about a decision, looking for the voice of God, make sure you look at what he's already said. In his first sermon, in the first sermon of the new covenant, we see so many of the promises of Christ fulfilled. Peter, who would not even say he knew Jesus, now is bold where he, is, where he was timid. He is humble where he was proud. Simply put, he's become a witness for Christ. The work the Holy Spirit does in us, it looks like this, what we just read, what Becca just read. It is boldness drenched in purpose. Let's talk about boldness. Verses 14 and 15. You know, long before this time, Peter tried to be a leader. I don't know if you've ever had somebody, worked for somebody, unfortunately, who is not a leader, but they really, they want to be a leader. Do you know what I mean? They like ordering people around, but they don't really want to be a leader. 
That was, that was unfortunately Peter. He was always, he was also, always had something to say when Jesus had, when Jesus was teaching. He would say things like, even if all of them abandon you, I will stay with you. He would say all kinds of things. He would get into those discussions about who is the greatest. He's basically like Cassius Clay. I'm the greatest. He's like Dwight Schrute from the office where he's constantly trying to butter up, but he just does not have the character to back it up. Certain people, they really like telling people what to do, but they're not a leader. Peter, by the book of Acts, has lost even that bravado. Peter, before the book of Acts, Peter in the Gospels, he has constant boasting, and he has constant boasting in himself. Jesus would say something, and Peter always had to add something to it. In fact, there was a time where Jesus says that he was going to Jerusalem to die, and Peter had the, the unmitigated goal to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. Whoa, and that's Jesus Christ we're talking about here. And that's when Jesus said, behind me, Satan, for you've not the mind of God. Peter tells Jesus that he will die with him. And when men come to capture Jesus, Peter's the one who goes after one of them with a sword and cuts off the dude's ear. And a lot of people very rightly mention that, you know, he's a fisherman. He probably meant like the head or something else. And very good point here, but he did get first blood and he used the element of surprise. So you can't take that from him. Um, Jesus fixes that mess. And Peter, who was willing to kill for Jesus, was after all, at the end, but not willing to die for Christ at that moment. Peter said he would go to the cross with Jesus. He cuts off a man's ear who, who had come to take Jesus. But when the time comes for the cross, where is Peter? Who knows? He didn't make it that far. He didn't even make it to the flogging. He was hanging back that night, and before and when asked three times if he even knew Jesus, Peter said he didn't know the man, one time even calling curses upon himself. Peter's not at the cross. By the time Jesus resurrects from the dead, Peter is not, Peter's not even where he used to be. He's with his boats. He's with his nets where Jesus found him before. This is where the resurrected Jesus meets him. And Peter, he comes to Christ, and Christ asks him, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than all of these? We've read this wrong for a number of years where we think Jesus is talking about the other apostles. He's really talking about the boats and the net that Peter went back to. I don't know if you've ever been there where you go back to the things that you used to know, those empty wells, the things you thought would fill you. Peter had gone back to these, and Jesus asked him, do you love me more than these? And Peter actually uses a different word for love. He says, I knew, you know I love you. And Jesus tells him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter was offended, it said. It said he was hurt. I wonder if any of the times when Jesus was saying these parables about a Pharisee and a tax collector, the Pharisee so proud, he said, thank you, God, I'm not like other men, but the tax collector couldn't even lift his face to heaven and beats his chest, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. If Peter ever once thought, that's me. Or did he think, like so many of us do, that's all the problems with the world, not me. I don't need to. You know who needs to hear that? John needs to hear that. The sons of thunder need to hear about this. Not me, I'm Peter. I don't know if that was his attitude or not. But you get to the point where Jesus reinstates Peter, and you see a man who can't even look to heaven and says, and who's saying, have mercy on me, God, a sinner in so many words.
you know I love you. He can't even use the same words as Jesus used for love. Jesus used the word agape. He used the word phileo. I love you like a brother. It's easy to say, I will go with you to the cross when there aren't any nails around. Peter, after, Paul, after Pentecost, really does mean it, however. This is something we know in history, and I'm going to tell you exactly the reference as well. Peter's martyrdom. Peter's martyrdom is an account of his death. It's included in the apocryphal book of the Acts of Peter. It is as early as the second century. It was widely distributed um, before the Acts of Peter, of the apocryphal book. Um, his, this, uh, this document documents the martyrdom of Peter during the reign of Nero. It was referenced by Tertullian, by Origen. These are church fathers of, uh, of the 1st, 2nd, and 5th century, and even Jerome of the 5th century. And how the story goes is that Peter was fleeing from the Romans, trying to get out of there. And he has an experience with Jesus who tells, who's walking with his cross, and Peter asks him, where are you going? He says, I'm going back to Jerusalem to be crucified because you won't. So Peter goes back to, Jeru- goes back to where, he, where the Roman soldiers are, and when they are ready to crucify him, he asks not to be crucified the way his Lord was because he wasn't worthy to be crucified the way his Lord was, but to be crucified upside down. And that is why today the cross of Peter is an upside down cross. Whether or not all of that is true, we do know that Peter was martyred. The word martyr from the Greek is martis. comes from the Greek, which is martis, which means witness. And what did Jesus promise of his disciples in Acts chapter 1? But you will be my witnesses. The reason why martyr became known as somebody who dies for their faith is because in the first century to say, I believe in Jesus Christ and he is Lord meant your death. The Holy Spirit had fallen upon Peter and he would be Christ's martis in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the outermost ends of the world. Here in Acts 2, he lifts up his voice. He doesn't teach like a rabbi, but he proclaims like a herald. We have in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. We kind of skip over this because we are used to me. I'm, I'm preaching at you. It's not a discussion. If you try to talk while I talk, I'll ask people to escort you out. Um, not how it works. But that wasn't, that wasn't the norm of the day. The norm of the day, if you were a rabbi, a teacher, you'd gather your disciples around and you would have this kind of teaching time discussion. You'd ask them questions. All of a sudden in the New Testament, we have a paradigm shift to preaching, of proclaiming, of heralding, because it's not my message. See, if you're a rabbi, you're going to teach everybody how to be like you. But as a preacher, I'm preaching to you and I'm telling you how to be like the only rabbi, the only teacher, Jesus Christ. It's not my message. So as you hear my words, as you hear my voice, if I have not preached according to God's word, I have reason for fear and trembling. But if I have preached God's word faithfully and you are not obeying it, you have reason for fear and trembling. You see here that Peter, unlike in the gospel where he was constantly trying to stand out, he's trying to stand out, he is standing with, but Peter standing with the 11. This is significant. He used to try to stand out all the time. Standing alone for what is right is romantic, it's inspiring. Ultimately, however, it's untrue 
and it's also full of pride. Elijah the prophet had this lament, and he said, and I'm the only one left. And God confronts him with it, and he says, I have reserved this number of people who have not bowed the knee to the Baals. We always like this idea of like, I'm the only one standing for truth. Our church is the only one that's preaching the word. It's not, and that's okay. I link together with those other brothers and sisters because that's how God has made the church to work together. We believe, if we stand true on the gospel, we are brothers and sisters, even if we have differences in so many other areas. He is not standing out, he is standing with. Peter used to try to stand out. He tried to make everyone understand that he was the greatest, but now he has understood in the day of Pentecost, he is standing with the 11. The first thing he says, he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The first thing Peter addresses in his sermon is the absurd claim that these people are drunk. It's nine in the morning. It is still thousands of years before Jimmy Buffett will sing a song about it being five o'clock somewhere. They're not drunk either. They're not acting drunk. If you think this is a good proof text for being drunk in the Holy Spirit, you are sorely mistaken. Nothing in this suggests in the least that they are acting inebriated. In fact, so much of the scripture warns about being drunk, about acting the fool. I could go on. So why are they making this accusation that they are drunk? Well, crazier explanations have been given for the work of the Holy Spirit. When someone doesn't understand something, they try to make whatever crazy thing they come up with fit. Here are just a couple that were on the top of my head for people explaining the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures, just the scriptures, nothing else. Aliens, convenient volcanic eruption, Casper-like ghosts, telepathy. I could go on and on, but they are not drunk. They are not acting drunk. Being drunk is not a fruit of the Spirit. It is an act of the flesh. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. Honestly, from the scripture, being drunk in the spirit is a contradiction as to what the Holy Spirit does. And honestly, it's better explained by just being caught up in the moment. And I've been there. And I repent of that. Because it wasn't the Holy Spirit's work. It was my work. It was in the flesh. Drenched in the spirit. Peter begins his sermon here, and he starts with a quotation from the book. Remember the person who who just made the book? He has a book. He has the Old Testament from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Peter will quote this, But in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. Peter starts his sermon here. He will give three different references to three different scriptures throughout his message. The first comes from Joel chapter 2. And in it, he explains what is happening for them. No one is pouring out a 40. No, they are being, the Holy Spirit is pouring out, being poured out on them. That in these last days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. You know, in the Old Testament, people working, operating in the Holy Spirit was very rare. 
It doesn't seem like that because we are reading the scripture chapter after chapter, event after event, and we don't realize that you could put the entire history of America in between some of these events. You know, we look at it, we have the Red Sea, we have manna from heaven, we have a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, uh, Samson killing a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. We have uh, David killing the giant Goliath, and I could go on and on and on, but these, these were very few and far between. To imagine that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all who believe, that's almost too good to believe. He says in the, the last days, you know, we've been in the last days for quite a while, since Acts chapter 2. In these last days, God has poured out his spirit. The last days should be seen, though, not as so much as a few days of the week, but really as seasons or eras. Look at the epic of the world, a beginning, a middle, and an end. The end being as long as the middle and the beginning could very well be the case, which we would have, very, we'd have a bit longer to go. Or it, could be shut, or it could be cut short in the next minute or so. I take it you've read books, and some of them have very long, uh, very long endings like Lord of the Rings, and some of them are like, boom, and it's over. And you're like, what just happened here? We never know when the end is going to come, so we should be ready at all points in time. We are ready, we are made ready by the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in that every gift and talent is a spiritual gift, and that is true. But the sense in which Peter is referring to here, the spirit empowerment, it is not about talents, but it is about gifts of the spirit being used for the building up of the church. They are gifts to be used for leading others to Jesus Christ. The section of Joel Peter quotes says that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. This will be echoed by other New Testament writers that we are one in Christ. This promise from Joel is for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that, in, that those in Christ can be drenched in the Holy Spirit. This, has no, this gives no partiality between genders, between slave or free, male or female, young or old, but all receive this blessing from Jesus Christ. That is, however, not to say that there are not roles for us. There are so many roles we could go over. And sometimes we, we feel like, well, if I'm not in this role, if I'm not on the stage, then I'm not as important as this person. So like myself, maybe you think, well, I have to be a pastor. I'm not as important as Jason. And that's not true at all. Not true in the least. Not true in the very, very least. All of us have the different roles we have to play. We have the different things that God has prepared before the foundation of the world for us to walk in. And when we say as the I, no, I'd rather be a hand, we don't do such a good job at picking up things. No, we have roles. We have roles even as men and women, as younger, as older. We have different roles that we come into and ones that we leave behind. And we have these things that we are to walk in. And as the great philosopher and theologian, The Rock, said, know your role and shut your mouth. We have in Joel's prophecy three mentions of gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophecy, visions, and dreams. Really, all of these are one. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, people prophesy, prophesied through visions and dreams and in other ways. Many see prophecy unfortunately, exclusively almost like a Miss Cleo from the 90s. I don't know if anybody remembers that or not. 
But Miss Cleo promised to tell you everything that you want to know. It's hard not to do the voice. I'm trying not to do the voice. We see it as psychics and mediums and things like that. Not, not sometimes there would be a prediction for the future, but John the Baptist, who was the greatest prophet of the old covenant, never did one prediction of the future and never did one miracle. But Jesus said, there is none born of woman that is greater than he. Because prophecy is telling you what God's heart is. All of us can prophesy, even just from reading the scriptures. Some of it is the gift of the Holy Spirit for prophecy, for the building up and encouraging of the church. But all of prophecy, both Old and New Testament, the Old Testament is ignorance, and the New Testament is with understanding, boils down to what the angel says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. John speaking here, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am your fellow servant. With you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. And listen to this. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The first thing I will ask anytime I hear of any kind of prophecy people are making is this. Does this make me love Jesus? Does this make me love Jesus more? Or does it fill me with fear, loathing, or whatever? Or even a, or even a sense of self-aggrandizement? Does it make me love Jesus more for the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus? What is actually happening on the day of, this is what is actually happening on the day of Pentecost. Peter isn't predicting anything, but he is still prophesying. The tongues that are being spoken and the interpretation thereof are being used in a prophetic way for what are they doing? They are telling of the mighty works of God. In verse 19 through 21, we see the purpose of this day. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the purpose of Pentecost. It is, a, it is for a harvest of souls. 3,000 souls that day will be saved. Pentecost is not a show. It's not entertainment. There's a purpose to Pentecost, to bring in a harvest, to celebrate the God who makes the harvest possible. 3,000 souls are saved. I want to mention about how this worked out between the tongues interpretation and the sermon um, by explaining that two of the commentaries I read this week actually disagreed with each other. One was Matthew Henry, whom I, I love, I've, I've supported, I've defended Matthew Henry's commentary. The other is by David Gorsick, uh, Gusick. I can never pronounce his name, but that's okay. Um, they disagreed on how this came about. Matthew Henry writes that the tongues continued during Peter's sermon and were part of the 3,000 that were saved. Um, David, on the other hand, says that they, they stopped so that Peter could speak and the 3,000 responded to his message. I have to say, even though I love Matthew Henry, I do not see what he's saying supported by the text because the text says that when they heard them speaking the wonders of God in their own language, they said these people must be drunk. And when they heard Peter preaching, they said that they were cut to the very heart. And they said, what must we do? We'll see this echoed in Paul's writing in Corinthians about intelligent words versus tongues um, in the church service and, and how that works out. I just want to mention that, but you know what the most important part about this, and they both agree about this? 3,000 were saved that day by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
3,000 brothers and sisters we will meet one day when we go to glory. There's a section in Joel, the scary section, as many, many people call this, in verse 19, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. I'm not going to spend like a half hour talking about end times theology here, but I just want to explain to you, we are talking about the day of the Lord, not the rapture. You may be very familiar with the rapture, thanks to left behind and things and things like that. The rapture is different from the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the end, 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 in which all accounts are settled. Either the wrath of God was poured out on Christ on the cross, or those who have sinned against the Lord, which is all of us, will pay for it in the lake of fire. So you read about this, it's, it seems scary. You wonder, well, when did this happen? Well, it hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened yet. But it will happen. It is, it is something that God has promised. But this is the day, the, the day of God's mercy. And in this day, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is the point of the scripture in Joel. And the point of the message the Holy Spirit is preaching through Peter is this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For my next maybe one, two, three sermons, we'll see what happens. I'm going to explain what Peter is explaining to the crowd. Jesus is Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel wrote that. And in the New Testament, Peter's going to tell them who the Lord is. Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh a word they wouldn't even say because they were worried about blaspheming. He is telling them, it is Jesus Christ. You know something? If he'd done this in the flesh without the working of the Holy Spirit, he would have looked forward to, to at the end of his message, death. It is what happened to Stephen, the first martyr of the church. It is the message they will not want to hear, and Peter is not Superman. In his flesh, he doesn't want to give this message and we see that because when Jesus is being led away to being crucified, remember he says, I don't know the man, but by the power of the Spirit, he is willing to suffer the wrath of the crowd so they may not have to suffer the wrath of God. And unfortunately, there's a wicked part in us, a part of the flesh, and we would rather that other person receive the wrath of God than us receive their wrath. It is why you see so many churches who will take what... God clearly says in his word and contradict it. They will twist the scriptures and they will say it's loving, it's caring. It doesn't make people feel uncomfortable. If you don't preach those things or if you try to explain them away in a way that doesn't hurt people's feelings, and it, and it sounds nice, but it is so cruel and it is so hate-filled because you would rather, for me to do that is for me to look at you in the eye and say, I'd rather you burn in hell than for me to be uncomfortable right now. It's part of all of our fleshly nature that we war against. The greatest, the greatest thing you can do when it comes to witnessing, to evangelism, is prayer. To be drenched in the boldness that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit and his purpose so that you can preach, that you, that you can proclaim, that you can tell others of the goodness of Jesus Christ without fear. And you know something? We look at the disciples, we look at the apostles, and we almost see them as supermen or superwomen in the faith, never having any issues. But Paul, after in Ephesians, he talks about the full armor of God and all of these things. And he says, pray for me too, that I may pre preach pre Christ boldly. 
you struggle with this, that's okay. We all struggle with this. We put on the armor of God, we make our stand, and we, and we, and we kill that part of our flesh that would have the other person experience hell instead of us experiencing the uncomfortable reality. Worship team, would you come up at this point? The boldness we see in Peter is a boldness we can have. Maybe not in the same way, but God will give you boldness in the time that you need it if you are reliant on the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples when they, are, when they are brought before kings and rulers, do not worry what they will say. We see Peter here. I don't know if he had prepared this message or if, he just, if the Holy Spirit was teaching him it on the fly. But we see this boldness he proclaims to the crowd. We see him drenched in the Holy Spirit. In these last days, God is pouring his spirit on all flesh. Is that you? Are you operating in the spirit? Ask yourself. Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Three, purpose. Are you about Christ's purpose or, you or your own? Who is Lord? Finally, this is the challenge. Peter will reiterate this challenge later on in his own epistle in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve. As each has received a gift, use it to serve. Sometimes we're like, well, my gift's not like their gift, so my gift's no good. Meanwhile, the congregation, the church, is being deprived of the gift God gave you for the church. Let me continue reading. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What gifts have God given you? We all have different gifts. Maybe last week you were baptized in the Holy Spirit and now you speak in tongues. Use that gift to edify yourself, to be ready for church on a Sunday morning, to be ready to minister toward, toward other people. Maybe you have gifts um, when it comes to public speaking. Maybe you're rusty at that. That's okay. You know something? All of our gifts were rusty at at the beginning. And we develop, we develop, we develop. Peter himself was rusty in so many of the things when it comes to the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. He's clearly in the wrong about something that Jesus gave him a vision of, and he had to go through it three times. Don't feel bad that you're still learning as well. Are, what are the gifts that God has given you? Whatever those gifts are, are you putting those to service? Are you using those to tell others about the goodness of Jesus Christ, of building up his church, of encouraging the brethren? Today is the day where we decide, I am going to live as Christ. I am going to live as the servant of all. Would you please stand as we finish our last song here? I said I began the series, not realizing the series would... This is always the case whenever I go on series, right? I would say this. It always goes on a lot longer than I was ever expecting. I plot it out, by the way. Like, I'm going to do it this week, this week, and this week. And then the Holy Spirit's like, not done. And I'm not done yet. He's not done with us with this. But I said when we started this series, that Pentecost is about a harvest. It is, not, it is not being amazed at speaking in tongues. No, it's about going out and telling, being witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the outermost ends of the world. For us, it's Algona. It's Corwith. 
it's Emmitsburg, it's Palo Alto, it's Kasuth, it's Iowa, the United States, and the outermost ends of the world with the power and the gifts that God has given us. Would you sing with us today as we reflect on this?